Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I did not look at the, the passage up in preparation, but I think it's, I think it's 1 Samuel 7, 16 or 16, 7. It's one of those two where we're told that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so for all of you who have been looking at me this morning like I'm an alien just because I shaved my goatee, you need to know that God still loves me and um, he sees my heart. Uh, so anyhow, um, it's good to know that I guess you look at me occasionally and you notice when things change. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, all right, so let's, let's, just, let's just dive in here to our, our text today. Start by just sharing a, a story that applies to to the point of our, our passage. There's um, there was this this rich businessman who was doing business down in Mexico, and he wandered by a harbor. And as he was wandering by, he was a little bit taken aback and maybe even a little bit annoyed as a successful businessman about this fisherman who was sitting on the dock. And as he sat on the dock, he was leaning against a pier pier posts. He had a cold drink and a guitar, and he was just strumming and kind of singing to himself. And the businessman couldn't help himself. He walked up to this man, and he says, why aren't you out there fishing? It was a, it was a beautiful day in the middle of the day. Why aren't you out there, there fishing? And the, the fisherman replied, well, um, because I've already gone out today, and I have caught all that I need for my, myself and my, my family. So the, the rich businessman says, well, why don't you raise your sights just a little bit, a little bit more and go out and catch some more fish than what just you and your family need? And the, the fisherman replied kind of inquisitively, well, why would I do that? So the businessman said quickly, um, you do this so that you can earn more money to buy a bigger and a better boat so you can go deeper and you can catch more fish. And then the, the fisherman says, well, well then what? And so the, the, um, the businessman says, well, then you can buy better nets. You don't have to use those old twine nets. You can get nylon nets, which will allow you to catch even more fish and make more and more money. And, and then the fisherman said, okay, well, well then what? Well, the, the businessman replied, he says, well, then, then you'll finally be able to sit down and relax and enjoy your life. <laughs> and you get the point. The fisherman said, you mean like I'm doing right now? that. The central theme really of our passage today is on the issue of godly contentment. Uh, contentment. And our culture is one today, both inside the church and outside the church, that really does struggle with living a contented life. And um, it was a big problem as well back in the church in Ephesus, the church that Timothy pastored. And, and this was for a number of different reasons that Paul is going to point out today to the church there, but also I think it very much applies to us, this topic of contentment. And I'm going to do something a little bit different today than I normally do. Normally I just go verse by verse right through a passage. We're covering verses 3 through 10. And um, Paul does something in this text that we saw a lot when we were in the Gospel of Mark, we called, they called Markan sandwiches, where he would introduce a topic, then he would give the meat of the topic, and then he would um, give another small point of the topic. And that's kind of the way this passage works. So what I'm going to do is, is go through the top 
and the bottom, and then we'll, we'll apply and look at the applications to this text as we hit the, the center portion, the meat of it. But to start off, to start off here, as Paul is talking, he points out very clearly that um, there is um, an issue with contentment. Now, what is contentment? I, I'm kind of a simple-minded guy. I like to just use the most simple and basic definitions. Um, the word contentment in its, in its root meaning is to have enough, to be completely satisfied. And in some contexts, it means to let your mind be at rest. So enough, completely satisfied, to let your mind be at rest. That's just the basic working defin- definition that we're going to use today. Now, again, both the church and the world, when they talk about the topic of contentment, they can apply it. The world might say, yes, I'm not content. I need to just be at peace with the world. I need to be at peace with my fellow man. I just need to be happy with everything and be okay with everything. But the church, our definition of contentment and our definition of what it means to be satisfied and and to be at rest in our mind is that for us as the church, we have come to this place where we know that for us, Christ is enough. For us, we have all that we need in our relationship with Christ. And so this is very important. Our mind is at rest because Christ is our life and um, he is our sufficient savior. He is enough for us. We need nothing more. But because we live in a fallen world and because the church back in Timothy's time, Ephesus, the Ephesians church, um, lived in a fallen world, there was some op- opposition to this, this issue of being godly and content. And what is that opposition? We, we see the first, the first opposition here as we come to verses 3 through 5. And the first opposition is false teachers. And with any false teacher comes false teaching, false messages. And so we see that these false teachers that have snuck into the church, they are not content with... They're not content with the person. They're not content with the work. They're not content with the deity of Christ. And this lack of satisfaction for these false teachers and the sufficiency of Christ leads them to a place where by their very nature, they breed this toxic, this depraved, almost this predatory approach to dealing with people inside the church. Their words were oftentimes um, laced with disease, laced with spiritual cancers that were eating at the the innards of the church. And so that's why Paul spends his time and focuses specifically on this time. And and one of the things that's neat that he does here, and um, a, a, um, a careful Bible student will see what Paul does as he walks through and looks at these point um, these false teachers, is he really becomes a spiritual pathologist. Now pathology is the it's the art of taking disease and analyzing disease to see what causes it so that you can ultimately come to a a way of curing it or treating it. And that's what Paul is doing with these false teachers. I think what he wants to see Timothy, he wants to see the leaders as well as the church as a whole to be able to to see before they get too infected by these these spiritual cancers. He wants the church to know how to spot this spiritual sickness that's masked cleverly by these teachers that sneak their way in. And so verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And we'll stop there for just a moment. Notice that word sound. 
That word sound is the exact same word that is translated in other places in your New Testament as healthy. Sound and healthy, same, same word there. And so he is saying here that um, you can summarize this in one word from the pulpit. When you look at what is sound teaching, the words of Jesus Christ, as well as teaching that accords with godliness, we can comprise that in a word that I'll say many times from the pulpit, and you'll hear many times um, in church life, the word gospel. The word gospel, simply put, is, is the word gospel. And I, 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 it's important to me that if we use words, we define what those words are. So what is, what is the gospel? Well, we can see the gospel laid out um, in, a, in a few key passages of Scripture. One of them is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and it says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. Now, if you're, if you're new to church, um, and we get new people every single week, if, you, if you're new to church or maybe you just need a refresher, the, the biblical worldview lets us know that all of humankind is under the curse of sin from birth. Uh, this is called original sin. It's what Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 says. He says that we are all born into sin and we are by nature children of wrath. So the sad thing is that religion religion attempts to deal with sin it attempts to deal with sin by giving people a bunch of rules to follow a bunch of do's and don'ts to follow in order to appease this wrath of original sin to appease god um, religion through centuries has given rules in order to follow these rules then at that point in time you get blessed by god if you follow these rules but paul here is saying wrong he's instead saying you are to hold fast to the words of christ and to the true teachings and doctrines and Paul here is talking about the, the grace that is offered by God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross vicariously in our place for our sins, which leads to the one verse that I encourage all of you to memorize if you want to know what the gospel is in a verse. It's a verse that my grandfather's read to me since I was a, a, a wee one. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's sad, though, that these false teachers, these false teachers were both adding to and, and taking away from, taking away from the, the, the sufficiency that is found only in Christ, the enoughness that is found in only Christ, and they're adding extra rules. They did it back in chapter 1, Paul points it out. Paul points it out again in chapter 3. If you're in growth groups, you'll get a chance to look at those passages. Um, and he does it again here. And so Paul, in, in helping to expose this false teaching where these gospel, um, these gospel, uh, um, what's the word for, um, someone's pretending. Um, people get masquerading around as, as gospel preachers um, where they weren't getting it. He says, this is their true colors in verses 4 and 5. It says, he is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil spirits, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved into the truth. And, and why do they do all this? 
Because they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. This is where we, a number of weeks ago, when we talked about false teachings and prevalent false doctrines of day, we talked about the prosperity gospel. This is another picture of that. But these false, arrogant-minded teachers and preachers that crept their way into the church, they, were, they weren't motivated by the grace offered through the gospel message. They were ultimately motivated, in this context, they were motivated by money. They were motivated by greed. And in other cases, in other places, they were motivated by power. And Paul says, no, that's not what the, the pure teaching and the true teaching of the gospel is all about. Which leads now to the second, the second um, enemy, the second opposition to contentment, and that is this. We see it in verses 9 and 10, the love of money. The love of money. Contentment, it's not a, fec- uh, it's not a function of the things in which we possess, but the things in which we cherish. So really the key question that, that this passage asks us is, is Christ alone enough for you? Is Christ in himself enough? Followers of him can be content because Christ is always with us. He's always with us. It's promised in scripture. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In verse 9, we see this enemy exposed again. He says, but those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, they fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now Paul, as he goes through 9 and the end of 10, he lays out this slippery slope of what takes place in a person when, um, when greed starts to get into their heart. And you'll see first here the word desire. See that word desire? Um, this means to crave for, to, to long for. Um, it almost it, it has the idea of reaching for something to the point where you lose your balance. I just um, a month or so ago, I did a motorcycle tour through New Mexico, and I stopped in to see my parents um, for the, the, the end of that trip, and they were in Phoenix, and Dad and I went and played some golf. And we have this thing, well, um, you've heard of it, mulligans, maybe. If you don't hit a good shot, um, you get a mulligan. You get a, you know, you're paying to play. You might as well have fun, right? So um, you get this mulligan. You get an extra shot. And oftentimes, um, you hit a bad shot into the trees. Not me, but Dad, you know. Um, you hit a bad shot into the trees. And um, your, your second shot is, is right down the middle of the fairway. Well, to play by the rules, if you go up and you find your first ball, you have to play that first ball. So um, what happens most of the time, we'll find that first ball. So we've got this thing where whoever's driving the cart in this particular case, dad was driving the cart, um, we go full throttle towards that ball, and the person who is in the passenger seat has to reach down to try to scoop the ball up while the cart goes by at full speed. It's like this kind of like this, you know, um, teamwork kind of thing, right? Yeah, well, my dad's a bit of a prankster. And so we're going after this ball this last time I was down there. And um, he wasn't getting as close to that ball as he, he should have been. And he's going at full throttle. And this particular course was kind of nice. And um, the, the charge on the electric motor was up. And so he was moving fast. And um, I go to reach for this ball. And um, I extend and I extend. And I'm going to get this ball because I'm going to get this ball. And what does dad do? He just a little bit, just, just a little bit jerked to the left and dumps me. On the, middle, on the middle of the golf course. But um, it, wouldn't have happened, it wouldn't have happened if I wasn't 
fully overextending myself, going after that golf ball. Okay, so you get the idea. Desire. That's, that's what this takes place. Those who love money, those who struggle with greed, there's this desire. And, and as this desire takes root in a person's heart, they, they get out of balance. And what happens? It says right here. It says, next, desire to be rich. They fall. They fall into temptation. They fall into temptation. This, the, a much better, more biblical example than my golf cart example comes from Genesis. Um, Genesis 13, you don't have to turn there, but this is where Lot, um, Lot had to choose, he got to choose where he was going to, to live. And in verses 10 through 13, we, we see this progression uh, that Lot did. First off, he was somewhat seduced by the, the allure of Sodom a wicked city. And so verse 10 says, and Lot lifted his eyes and he saw the, the plain of the Jordan. And this is well water everywhere. It was a lush place. So he, he was seduced by the beauty of what he saw. And then verse 11, it, it's so, it says that he then started to walk towards Sodom. So, so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out east towards it. And then in verse 12, He didn't just see it and get seduced towards it. He then walked towards it, and then he chose to live near it. Verse 12, Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tents near Sodom. He faced his tents towards this wicked city. And then, sadly, verse 19, we see he then was sitting in the gates of Sodom. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. He no longer just desired. He no longer just walked towards. He no longer just lived near. Now he's found in the gates, living in the gates. And we know what happened to him. This is the process when, when desire starts to take place. And it was obviously starting to take place in some of the people in the church there in, in Ephesus. And so it goes from desire to this falling into temptation And after falling into temptation, soon to follow is deception. Soon to follow is deception. Notice that in verse 9. It says, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. A snare, those of us who who know the woods know what a snare is. A snare is something that that catches an animal um, by surprise. And by the time they know they're in it, it's too late. They're caught. They're stuck in a trap. Um, this is what it's referring to when it says senseless and irrational and harmful means. It brings injury to them. After desire comes falling into temptation and then from temptation becomes deception. And then look at the rest of verse 9. It says that plunge people, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Uh, the, word, the word plunge there, it's the idea of something sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Something falls out of the boat or breaks off the boat and it just, it drops, it sinks to the bottom of the lake. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is if we don't, if we're not careful about the things in which we try to satisfy the enoughness in our lives, then we end up being plunged in all kinds of ways. Now, the word ruin there, it's talking about a divine kind of punishment and then Divine punishment speaks of an eternal damnation. I mean, this progression, this slippery slope is a hard one. According to uh, the the National Endowment for Financial Education, about 70% of everyone who wins the lottery, within two to three years of that winnings, they are completely broke. 
Other studies show that lottery winners are frequently the ones that are most estranged from family and, f- and friends after they have their winnings. They incur greater debt afterwards, after they've come out of that and spent their earnings. Um, drug addiction, depression, alcohol abuse, divorce, and suicide rates are much higher than the average poor Americans, if there even are poor Americans, in light of the bigger picture of the world. So um, now, Paul, what he does, he, he, he does something beautiful. It's something that we kind of miss in, in our understanding of, of um, Hebraic language. But he does this where he, he does this literary structure, and he basically mirrors verse 10 after verse 9. He, he says the same thing. And anyone who is, wants to be a, a, a good Bible student, an efficient Bible student, they'll know a few tricks. One is always context, context, context. You always want to read Scripture within its context. That's key. But another one is if there's repetition, it's important. If there's repetition, it's important. If it's repeated, it's important. If it's said more than once, it's probably important. So that's what we see here. Verse 10 is saying the same thing. We see the same pattern um, with some slightly different words to bring home the importance of this because he wants the church to learn this. He wants the church to be aware and on guard for the, the falsity that is coming in to the church because when that falsity comes in, it kills, it destroys, it does what this, so look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, for the love of money, the love of money is the, the root, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And we notice right here, we notice right here that money is not the root of evil. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so let's just note the same pattern. Verse 9, he describes this concept of desire to be rich. Um, And in verse 10, he uses the word, the love of money. In verse 9, he says, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. In verse 10, he describes the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil. And interesting here is that the word root is placed in the front of of the sentence here. And that's done for the purpose of of emphasis. So um, the root, this is an important principle in all of life. We saw it in Jesus' teachings too. The root always determines what the fruit will become. The the fruit is a representation of what the the root is. Um, The sin of coveting, which is interesting, which is covered as the 10th commandment, is said by some commentators to be the root um, of breaking all of the other nine commandments that come before it. So the the love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of difficulty in our world today. It makes me think back to Awana days when um, some of you who have been around know Mr. Eddie, and uh, Mr. Eddie was one of our great teachers, and uh, he did a film with the kids about the story of Achan. I I should have found the film and showed it to you. It was really cute because they were all the the actors, but... um, Achan was one that that fell into this process of having a desire and then falling into temptation and then being seduced and ultimately it destroyed him. But in Joshua 7, 21, when he finally confessed what he had done and why he had done it, it says this, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And Psalm says, the one who is greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. 
So we see this desire, this love of money, but then it goes quickly to this the same concept of deception. Verse 9 tells us that temptation leads into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. But verse 10, as you notice, it says, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. So that word wander, similar. It's similar to the desire. It's similar to craving. It refers to, again, stretching oneself out to reach after something. And Paul was himself greatly hurt by a man that we'll see when we get to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's a man named Demas. And it says this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Money, by its very nature, especially the love of money, is incredibly deceptive. And in, in describing the four soul types represented by four different soils in, in Jesus' parable, um, Jesus describes how the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke out the word of God. It's this desire. It's something that we live in this culture and we're constantly tempted to fall into. And then verse 9 describes we, how these desires will punch people into ruin and destruction. And in verse 10, it says that people will be pierced with many pangs. They will pierce themselves with many pangs. And that, that word pierce it's graphic. It's a graphic word. Um, it was used for putting meat on a skewer and rolling it over a fire. It's that picture of being impaled, impaling a, a piece of meat that virtually is almost already cooked, already dead. But notice how people do this to themselves because pangs um, was used to describe self-inflicted wounds. That's what a pang is. But the, the big thing to listen for here is that the desire for, the love of money is ultimately going to deceive and destroy us. It will do those things, causing us to really lose the things that matter most. And what are those things? We'll talk about that. So now, now we'll jump back to verses 6 through 8, and we'll look at really the, the, three, the three practicing components of contentment. You want to practice contentment? Um, Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like in verses 6 through 8. So number four, or the first of these practices, is this, to prioritize faithful godliness over financial gain. It says, but godliness with contentment, that is of great gain. That is of great gain. Godliness leads to, to contentment which is great gain. The, the word great there is the word mega, megas, and it means huge, it means large, and instead of focusing on wealth, instead of focusing on health like many do, uh, we're called to prioritize growth and godliness. Now again, let's think back. What is, a lot of people think godliness, they think I've got to do a bunch of things. I've got to follow a bunch of rules. No. When you think of godliness, think of the gospel. Think of the Jesus who bore on the tree your sins, so that when God looks upon you, he sees the vicarious work of Christ. And when we walk in that beauty of the gospel, we can't help but to be motivated and desired to say thank you in a life that's lived out of a life of gratitude. Not that it's not hard work. We, we, still, we still have to work at it. That's, there's nothing wrong with work. We talked about work last week. Work is a sacred thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but it also is in the context of a fallen world. But prioritize faithful godliness over financial gain. Because godliness does not give financial gain. Godliness is in itself gain when it's combined with contentment. 
So when we, when we seek our satisfaction, when, when Christ himself is enough for us, we become what Paul is talking about here as contented followers of him. So prioritize faithful godliness over financial gain. Number five, proclaim, proclaim that what you have is already not yours. Everything that you have, everything that you have has been given to you and you can't take it with you when you die. I think these are things that we probably know, but it's always good to have a good refresher and that's what Paul does in verse seven. He says that in verse seven, he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. We didn't bring anything in, we can't take anything out of it. Job made this famous by saying, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. And Solomon discovered this well as as he, he wrote in Ecclesiastes. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. And then of course Psalms, Psalms 49. For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. What we have is not really ours in the first place. And then finally, number six here, number six, you see this on the front of your bulletin. Pursue wanting what you already have. Pursue wanting what you already have. And notice, um, but if we have food and if we have clothing, with these things we will be content. We have food and we have clothing, with these things we will be content. If we have the necessities of our lives, we'll be content, right? Contentment has nothing to do with having everything that you want. Contentment comes when you want the things that you already have. Proverbs 15, better a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. The, uh, the millionaire, J.D. Rockefeller, he once was asked the question, how much money is enough for you? And he said, just a little bit more. And after he died, someone said, how much did he leave behind? And they answered, all of it. And in contrast, to, in contrast to Rockefeller, there was this beautiful woman who some of you may have read her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom, and she said this, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. That I still possess. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9 says this, keep falsehood and lies from me. This is what was going on in the church of Ephesus and it's what goes on in our church today and the world that we live in today. Falsehoods and lies creep in. They creep in deceptively through false teachers and their teachings. The proverb says, keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. And I say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and I steal, and then I dishonor the name of my God. I'm going to have the um, elders come. As, as a perfect picture of this passage, perfect picture of this passage is the uh, joy of being able to observe communion together. Because what is communion? Ultimately, it's an ordinance that, that Jesus instilled for us. But communion is saying what? It is saying that Jesus is enough. That I'm content. My heart is full because of what I have in Christ. He's never going to leave and forsake me, so I don't have to ever worry about 
um, being in need or being in want. The, the passage that Rianne read this morning is so perfect too. That the things in which we worry about, we need not worry about because we are promised those things in Christ. And so much of the hardship and so much of the pain in our lives has to do that we've stepped outside of the enoughness of Jesus. We've stepped outside the enoughness of Jesus and also the things in which he has blessed us with. And boy, are we blessed. If you're in this room, you're blessed. You might think, well, I don't make as much money as I like. Or No, we're blessed. If you feel down like you've got it tough, you need to go on a missions trip to anywhere else uh, in the world primarily. But especially those places that are ridden with poverty. Contentment. It is not a f- function of what we possess, but what we cherish. And that's why our, our purpose here at our church is to reach with the gospel. Not to reach with religion, not to reach with good works, not to reach with social movements, but to reach with the gospel, those people that are near to us but are far from him because the enoughness that they need in their life isn't the next thing that they think will make them satisfied. And that's the problem with an idol, right? An idol is like um, a high school boy. It's never satisfied. There's never enough food in the cupboard. There's never enough milk in the fridge. There's never enough... I don't speak from experience. Don't look at my family. (laughs) But an idol works this way. An idol works this way. It's never filled. It always needs more. It always desires more. When we celebrate communion, this is what we're saying. Christ, you are enough for me. I can't wait for you to return like that song that Noah led us in to start off. Um, even, even so come. Um, so as, as the, the, the uh, elders are coming forward to pass out these elements, please know that if you've not committed your life to Christ, if you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior and given your life to him, um, then just let the cup pass by you. Or if you have a grievance against someone else in this room or outside of this room and your heart is hard, um, don't take the cup. The, the, the directions that were clearly given in Scripture say, make sure that you leave the altar, leave your sacrifice at the altar, and go take care of any grievance you might have with someone before you participate and you drink condemnation upon yourself. So, um, but I would say, this is a time for the rest of us just to say, Christ, you are enough. You are enough. And I thank you for your body and your blood, your sacrifice for me. This is a time of reflection as we pass this out. We'll come back together and we'll, we'll actually take the elements um, as a congregation, but we'll begin passing them out now.